The Going Viral podcast from Health Ed shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the Health Ed app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to Health Ed's Going Viral. I am David Lim. Associate Professor Nick Wood presents an update on the children's 5 to 11 year vaccine program and comments on the relative efficacy of various vaccines as boosters and why we should encourage our patients to have a booster sooner rather than later. Uh, Professor Woods, tell us about yourself. Oh, hi there, David. Yeah, so I'm a clinician and academic at the University of Sydney and at the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance and also work at the Children's Hospital at Westman. Now, Nick, we're going to look at the topic of COVID boosters and also briefly at children's jabs. I guess really highlighting the need for this talk uh, is an article from the Sydney Morning Herald today, uh, and it states that 33 of the 36 people who died in New South Wales have received at least two doses of a coronavirus vaccine. But Chief Health Officer Kerry Chant said that generally they have not received a booster dose. So Nick, a few questions does arise. The first is how many of the 33 vaccinated deaths actually received boosters? Yeah, so I, I'm not sure specifically, David, with those 33 cases, how many had had a booster, but what is pretty clear is that a booster dose certainly bumps up your protection um, against the Omicron variant. And so uh, we can talk a little bit more about that. But what, what this sort of highlights is, is a well-known phenomenon called the vaccine paradox. And, and the anti-vaccine groups like to... Um, uh, specify that this shows that vaccines aren't working but in actual fact what it sort of if you look in more detail it it, it actually when you look at the numbers it, it actually shows the vaccines do work quite well and so it's hard to to illustrate it uh just by talking but i'll give it a go <laughs> so if you've got a thousand people in the community that are vaccinated and, and your vaccine coverage is 90 percent which is pretty much what we are in the over 18s um, that would mean that there are 900 people vaccinated and then 100 people that are not vaccinated. Now, if you have a 1% chance of dying and those 100 people um, have a 1% you know, chance of dying if they get COVID um, and they all get COVID, then that's one death in the unvaccinated people. Now, of the 900 that are vaccinated, the vaccine is about 90 to 95% effective against hospitalisation, um, certainly after your third booster dose against Omicron now. And so that would mean that if, they, let's say for simple numbers, we have 90%, that would mean that there were 90 people that got infected um, if they all got exposed. And of those 90, you had a 1% chance of dying. That's about nine. So it looks like there's more deaths, so 10 deaths in total. Nine were in the vaccinated and one was in the unvaccinated. But it's, it's sort of a statistical, um, you know, bit wizardry because it looks like there's many more deaths in the vaccinated compared to the unvaccinated, but that's simply because there are many more people in the community vaccinated than there are unvaccinated. 
So it's a bit hard to do it verbally, but that's the general concept. Nick, I like it. I can see it. Uh, I also have another thought about this in the sense that uh, tomorrow's figures will have a completely different numbers of vaccinated and unvaccinated, and we should never bank on just one day's worth of numbers. That's true. Yeah. This is a public health announcement on behalf of the Immunisation Coalition. Well, hello, my name is uh, Professor Robert Boy. I'm an infectious diseases specialist and epidemiologist, and I especially like to talk about uh, vaccination and the prevention of vaccine-preventable diseases. There's a very real risk that a whole bunch of viruses will be imported, but influenza is the most concerning. Suddenly, when we shut the borders in March 2020, mm. flu went away. And we haven't had a flu season now for two years. And that is really, really important because there's no natural immunity out there uh, nearly as much as there was. And also the influenza vaccination rate in 2021 was really quite low. People were so busy getting themselves COVID vaccinated, they didn't get their flu jam. So the combination of two really quiet flu seasons, very quiet in Australia, and a poor level of vaccination in 2021 against influenza means that there's a great many people who are much more susceptible to influenza than usual. And I would predict that we'll get at least a moderate season and probably a big flu season. 2017 and 2019 were both big influenza seasons in Australia. We've now had two quiet ones. I would predict fairly strongly that we're due for trouble in 2020. 22, and it's probably going to start early in 2022 as well. So what we do have already is a lot of vaccines from last year against influenza in people's fridges. Now, because flu hasn't been transmitting, it also hasn't been mutating. When flu is in anyone's body, it can change its spots within a couple of days. It's an RNA virus that mutates very easily. A COVID takes more like two weeks in a chain of transmission to get a meaningful mutation. Flu takes more like two days. So because flu has not been transmitting, it won't have mutated terribly much. And so the vaccine that we've had all year and in our fridges still, if we suddenly got a surge in December, January, people who are at risk, especially 65 and above chronic medical conditions, they may well benefit from a flu jab, a booster, especially if they didn't have one last year, if they forgot. So those flu jabs in your fridge might actually turn out to be useful in uh, December, January, if we suddenly get the surge that I'm worried we might have of influenza. And then we'll have new flu jabs available from March. And they, of course, have been updated and uh, they would be appropriate to use from March. However, uh, Nick, you did bring up that really important topic, which I really want to get to. It is the efficacy of boosters. And maybe you can be a little bit more specific if you like, um, you know, AZ with um, uh, uh, mRNA booster, uh, mRNA with other mRNA boosters. Uh, and so we can understand uh, how to advise patients. Yeah, so there's a really nice report that's actually just come out from the UK um, it's the UK Health Security Agency, and it's called the COVID-19 um, Vaccine Surveillance Report for week two of this year. 
Um, and it, it is really good because it's up-to-date data and it looks at the um, vaccine efficacy against Omicron and particularly narrows down on the whole uh, effect of the booster dose. And, and what it shows is that um, after two doses of AstraZeneca and two doses of Pfizer, um, there, it's really clear that the protection against Omicron is lower than it is against Delta. That's the first point. And the, the longevity appears to only last around about 20 weeks. So that's sort of five months. Uh, beyond the 24-week period, beyond the six months, the effectiveness of two doses against AstraZeneca, uh, for, of AstraZeneca or Pfizer against Omicron is, is below 20%. So, so quite low indeed, um, particularly for symptomatic disease. Then what they do is they, they look at the vaccine effectiveness after a booster dose. And they actually look at if you had two doses of AstraZeneca and then you get a, a booster of uh, the Pfizer or two doses of Pfizer and then you get a booster of the Pfizer. Um, and so what they show there is that the vaccine effectiveness actually jumps up from below 20%. In, in around about the two to four week mark after the vaccine, it, it hits the sort of 60 to 70% mark against Omicron. For Delta, it's still at 90%. So it definitely boosts you for Delta protection, but it does boost you up quite significantly for, for Omicron protection. Um, it then appears that the, this is early, early days, but it then appears that that vaccine um, does start to wane again. Um, now, we don't really know what that translates into in the real world in Australia yet, but, but in the UK, it's very clear that a booster of, of the uh, Pfizer um, will give you a, a better protection in that month to two month after um, against uh, Omicron, um, around about the 70% mark. So you're saying that after the booster, we'll definitely get a very significant protection for one to two months, but we it's still too early to know what's going to happen in the medium term. That's right. So we don't, we don't quite have the data yet to say how long does that booster last you? Do you need another one? Um, this will obviously be looked at um, and, you know, Omicron might burn itself out or maybe there'll be a new variant. Um, so we'll see. And now there are, we might talk about it a bit later on, but there are Omicron variant boosters in production or in, in, in creation, so to speak, but, but they're a little while off. Actually, we might talk about that because it is interesting because if you're looking at the potential or the possibility of who knows whether or not immunity and protection might wane after a booster, what will happen if we actually had an Omicron-specific uh, booster? Uh, what do you think could happen uh, I know, I know it's crystal balling, but um, it seems production is already happening. So it, we will be getting it, and we need to know how to use it. Yeah, so I think they'll have to work out whether you, say, had a in the original variant uh, booster, um, when you should then get your Omicron um, booster, and that will be guided a bit by the vaccine effectiveness data that will probably come out predominantly from the northern hemisphere. And UK and the US and Israel as well, because Israel started to give some members of their population a fourth dose. So, so I can't answer specifically what how they will use an Omicron variant, but Pfizer and Moderna are certainly tweaked the mRNA recipe to try and cover the Omicron uh, genetic strain. 
and then they'll have to do um, a limited uh, clinical trial to show that they've got some safety data and immunogenicity data, probably comparing that to the original variant strain that they've used. Um, and then based on that, they'll be able to, well, that's called an immunobridging study. And then based on that, they can put that to the regulators. Uh, and then it'll be up to groups like the CDC, ATAGI, the UK equivalent, which is the JCVI, to work out which groups in the community benefit most from that. And they'll be guided by what's appearing in the hospitalisation data, what sort of people are being hospitalised. Now, there are a significant number of people in Australia who are either not vaccinated or awaiting Novavax, either as primary vaccination or as boosters, uh, having had two jabs of other vaccines. What did that particular study from the UK show about Novavax as a booster? And do you have any comments about Novavax for its use as a primary uh, COVID jab in the face of an Omicron wave? Yeah, so the Novavax vaccine is still under consideration via the TGA. Uh, not quite sure when they'll make a determination on it. And I'm also not completely sure whether the company put up for um, registration. I, I assume they put up for registration both as a primary course, but also as use as a booster. Um, and and the, there was a nice study published in The Lancet, which was the UK um, COVID boost study. And they did a very um, comprehensive look at a whole range of responses to those people that had had the, the primary course of either Pfizer or AstraZeneca um, or of other many other vaccines, including um, you know the, some of the Russian the Russian one, um, uh, the Chinese one as well. And so they were looking at um, how well different boosters happened as well. And it appeared that the mRNA vaccines. Um, we're giving you a better response as a booster compared to, say, the, uh, the Novavax booster. Um, it was, now, it's, they're immunogenicity studies, so they're not real-world vaccine effectiveness studies, but that was sort of the, the, the take-home message there. So, And that's why we've got predominantly the Pfizer or the Moderna um, as the recommended booster uh, vaccines for Australia. So, in short, a practical message for GPs and our patients is, don't wait for the Novavax, just go and get your boosters now because they seem to be the more effective ones. I think that's right, yeah. Now, what about the five to 12 year old program progressing? How's it going? Hey, look, it's doing, doing, doing well. It's only just started on January the 10th. And so we'll start to get some vaccine coverage data uh, very soon. Um, I suppose what is in, important to note is that we do have some uh, very good safety data out of the US. Um, and so the US has now given um, close to 8 million doses. And there was a very nice report in the, um, there's a CDC publication, which is called MMWR, which is the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. And there's a very nice publication from December the 31st um, by uh, the first author is, is Anne House, H-A-U-S-E. And they've looked at the um, safety data in children aged 5 to 11 years, and it's all looking very encouraging. So there's, there's the usual side effects that we saw, um, such as pain at the injection site, some fatigue and headache that we saw in the older kids, but importantly, no, no significant signal for serious adverse events. Um, so, so that's good. So that one of the concerns, I think, of the, of the public has been 
how safe is this vaccine in the five to 11s? And this paper in MMWR um, goes, goes a long way to help us um, understand that, which is great. There will be some data coming out from Ausvac Safety, which is the Australian active safety surveillance system. Um, so far, we've had about 50,000 encounters in the five to 11 year old kids reported to the um, system. And in the next week or so, we'll be able to get their initial reports of, of the children's side effects and that will appear on the Ausvac Safety website as well. So, so that's that's good. We don't we know from the trials that the lower dose that it's, it's a Pfizer ten microgram dose compared to the thirty microgram dose that we use in the adults, and the schedule is uh, eight weeks between dose one and dose two, and we know from the, the original trial that the children made a good amount of antibody with that ten microgram dose, and so. Um, we don't yet have any uh, real-world effectiveness data, but it will be coming soon as well. This is a public health announcement on behalf of the Immunisation Coalition. Pertussis vaccinations protect our seniors. The fatality rate for pertussis aged over 50 is higher than for one- to five-year-old children. Despite this threat... Pertussis vaccination coverage in over 65s is unknown. This contrasts with influenza vaccination at 80%, pneumococcal vaccination at 40% and shingles vaccination at 25% coverage. As with all adults, people over 65 should get pertussis vaccination every 10 years. Protect against pertussis. Nick, just to be specific about the report, number one, uh, have there been reports of mortality? And number two, I guess what we're concerned about would be the myocarditis, pericarditis. Yeah, so there were a couple of reports um, in the, so the US has different systems to look at. The, they have a passive reporting system, which is a little bit like our uh, TGA um, passive reporting system. Um, and uh, there were no, there were, I'm just trying to find here now, there were about uh, 15 reports of, of myocarditis, um, which of 11 were verified as being myocarditis. And of these um, uh, 11 children, seven had recovered and four were still being recovered at the time they published it. So um, yes, there have been a couple of reports, but that's in several million kids that have been vaccinated. Um, and that's the passive reporting system. And, and there, were, there were two deaths reported in that system. Both of the children had complicated medical histories and they were in fragile health before the vaccination. And when they've reviewed those individually, they, they don't believe there was any causal link between the death and, and the vaccine. So, so yes, if you were asked, have there been any reports of death? Well, the answer in the US systems have been a couple of reports but they're taken very seriously and reviewed in a lot of detail. And in the US publication, they've not found any causal link. Would that shape our recommendations to parents uh, with regards to kids with complicated uh, medical histories? Um, no, no, I don't think so. No, we because we, they're the ones that are more likely to end up with significant COVID if they get the real illness compared to uh, the, the healthy kids. So in this sense, there's much more benefit for them to be vaccinated. Um, we know that one of the risk factors for nasty COVID is, is underlying medical conditions, particularly things like, like obesity and diabetes, particularly. 
uh, as well as um, neurological um, and, and chronic lung disease type problems. So yeah, they're, they're a key group to get the vaccine. And, and I suppose the other thing to add on to that is that ATAGI just recommended yesterday that children aged five to 11 years who have uh, underlying immune suppression should get a third dose. Mm -hmm. um, now it gets a bit confusing, a third dose versus a booster dose. Um, and so I think the way to think of it is, is what is the primary schedule? Yep. Um, and so for anyone now who's over the age of five, who has the immune suppression, their primary schedule should be three doses. Okay. And, and of the mRNA vaccine. And the gap between dose two and dose three is somewhere in the, in the range of two to six months. So, so that's their primary schedule. Uh, yeah. Immunosuppression, primary schedule, needs three doses. Much like we do with pertussis, we give three doses in infancy, we give three doses of dip diphtheria vaccine in infancy. So, um, and then the other thing is that those people who are now over 18, and have had their three doses because of a primary course, because they're immune suppressed, they're now recommended a fourth dose, which is a booster dose. Uh, what about children under five? So children under five are still in the clinical trial stage. Uh, both Pfizer and Moderna have lowered the antigen content in their vaccine. And so we will be expecting the clinical trial, both immunogenicity and safety data in the next few months, I think. Um, and based on that, again, the company applies to the regulator for registration. And, uh, and then the regulator decides whether it's sufficient to allow it to be registered. And then obviously the next step beyond that will be the six months to 12, two year olds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, they'll probably need to tweak the antigen content for the under six month old, we're pretty much going to rely on uh, the maternal or the pregnancy vaccine. That makes a lot of sense. Looking forward to hearing more about those studies. Um, Nick, I'm just wondering, with the flu season coming in a few months, uh, what would your recommendation be for basically people who are well and people who are not well? Um, so, so the flu vaccine will probably be available come uh, March, maybe, hopefully. <laughs> and so certainly the people that are normally recommended to get the flu vaccine should um, get that as well. I think there was thoughts about having to split the gap, but now they've suggested that you can give them both on the same day. So you don't need to have any interval between the flu vaccine and the um, COVID vaccine. Are there any vaccines coming in the pipeline uh, that may be available in Australia this year? The Probably the one that's closest to availability in the market will be Novavax. But as we've seen, it uh, seems to be whether it's come out as a primary course, which is probably not going to suit the company so much because nearly everyone's already had their primary course. So I suspect they've put up to give it as a booster dose. Um, that's one there. I don't think the, there is a, a Sanofi product that's in clinical trial as a booster dose as well. It might be um, possibly coming to registration, depending on what the clinical trial shows from that one. I'm not aware of any others. I mean, there are international vaccines that are used, you know, in China, Brazil, etc. Um, Sinopharm, CanSino, etc. Uh, the Sputnik Russian one. So there is um, some information about 
the TGA, recognising those vaccines um, on the TGA website. So you can have a look at that. It gets updated um, fairly regularly. Nick, that was a really important uh, catching up with you because of all these data coming about, out about not just hospitalizations, but deaths and the importance of boosters. Now, do you have any final messages for our listeners? I think the, the importance of just for children, really, reminding you know parents that we have had a fairly large number. In fact, the US has vaccinated already our entire 5 to 11-year-old population. And so there's no safety concerns identified there. Um, which is really good news. I think the timing of the booster, as we talked about, it's sort of uh, four months after your second dose. Um, but Atagi has said from the end of January, which is not far off, it could drop even to three months. So yeah, the booster is is important and it will give you this lift in protection against severe Omicron, which is really, really what, we, what we're trying to, trying to sort of stop. That's the main aim, really. One last parting shot at you. Many people have claimed that Omicron is the end of the pandemic. What's your personal take on this? I don't know, to be honest, David. I'm not a card-carrying epidemiologist. My, my guess is potentially that, like the flu, it's not going to disappear completely. It might just change itself. I suppose the thing is if we all become immune from exposure or from um, vaccine, then um, it's going to be less circulation of the virus in the community and, and hopefully this current wave will just burn out. But um, we've seen, you know, beta, we've seen delta, we've now seen Omicron. So the virus is probably going to just through natural replication develop new strains and, and if that escapes our underlying immunity, um, we might see some more cases. So I, I not uh, not able to um, predict, I'm afraid. <laughs> yes, uh, not as optimistic as many others who put uh, who say these things. I personally am concerned about the number of infections worldwide with the Omicron because that must certainly increase the risks uh, for a new variant to arise. Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, you know the. the the virus is is um, not going to wither on the vine. I suppose it, it's okay. going to, if if natural selection and the the, the variant strains. Every time a virus you, you know replicates, it can doesn't replicate exactly, and so a new a new variant can be created, and um, that then means that um, there's a chance that it could evade our underlying immunity and spread again. So. And I think this again highlights the importance that um, we shouldn't take it for granted it's going to disappear and it's mild um, boosters are actually really essential right now. And the earlier the better. I think that's right, exactly. Nick, it's been really good talking to you. Thanks very much, David. Catch up with you another time. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be.
Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.